May the words of my mouth and may the thoughts and the meditation of each of our hearts truly be pleasing in your sight this morning, O Lord. For you are our rock and you are our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. As uh, I was introduced earlier, uh, my name is Pastor Dan Hudson, uh, and I'm one of the pastors at Shepherd of the Hills in Pewaukee, and so all the brothers and the sisters of that congregation send their greetings of peace uh, and blessing to you. It's wonderful uh, to have a chance to come and share God's word here. Uh, So I am relatively new to the South Wisconsin district as a pastor. Uh, I grew up in the West Bend area. Uh, but have spent the last 15 years uh, doing ministry, pastoring churches in the Chicago area, and recently have received and started a call uh, as one of the pastors at Shepherd Hills since, um, since April. But some of you, most of you, probably would know me in a different way. Uh, I have, uh, if, if you know Ken and Carol Bird, then uh, Ken is my mom's twin brother. So I, I may have, me and the other nep- nieces and nephews might be the only ones who have this permission, but he's my Uncle Kenny. <laughs> you may have to ask him if you're allowed to call him Uncle Kenny, uh, but uh, have a chance now to, to be back in the area close to family and a chance to be here to spend this morning with you. Uh, so I, I'm going to ask you to grab your Bibles. If you brought one, awesome. I love to see people walking into church with their Bibles. Uh, if you don't have one, grab one at the chairs in front of you. Open it up to Mark chapter 2, to the gospel reading that we had earlier. You can find that on page 837 in your Bibles. We're just going to look at this story and, and dive into a little bit deeper. This is one of those stories that you have probably grown up hearing or listening to. One of the more interesting miracle stories of Jesus. Uh, but I, I would contend and I would predict that, like me, you, you might have missed some of the really interesting nuances to this story that help uh, bring about even a deeper meaning than, than you, have, you may have gleaned in the past. So what I want to do is just walk deeper into this story together and uh, see what we can discover about what God is doing in your lives today. So let's just start at chapter 2, verse 1 of the book of Mark on page 837. Just right away at verse 1. And when Jesus, he returned to Capernaum after some days. So Capernaum is in the northern area of the Holy Land or the Promised Land. It's around the Sea of Galilee. So this is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Not long ago, he was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, sent off into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit for 40 days to be tempted and tested by Satan himself, only to come out uh, victorious. And then he goes along the Sea of Galilee, calls some fishermen to follow him as his disciples, and he's got some disciples now who are following him and doing ministry with him and learning from him. And now he's back into his hometown area of Capernaum. So this is around the Sea of Galilee area. It even says that they're at his house. And I'm not sure if it means the house of Jesus or just one of the houses of the people who are following him. We're not sure, but he's back in the area. And it was reported that he was at home. Verse 2, And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. So it's interesting. 
So this is new in his ministry, and there's already a full house. There's already standing room only, and Jesus has just sort of begun his ministry. How does that happen so fast? Well, you don't have to go far. All you have to do is look back at the previous chapter to get a hint of what one of the answers is to that question. So verse 45 of chapter 1. Another miracle story, Jesus heals a leper, and then he tells him, don't tell anybody about what I just did. Does anybody ever read that and wonder, why in the world would Jesus do that? Why? He does it in several areas in his ministry. He will do some crazy miracle, something that you would think would give great testimony that he is the, the Son of God and that you'd want everybody to know about it. But Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody. Just keep quiet about it. You wonder why? Well, here I think might be one answer, verse 45. But he, the man who had leprosy, who was now healed went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news about it so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out kind of stuck in the desolate places and people had to come to him. So this means that Jesus, the word about Jesus has gotten out in such a way that he can't even show up in a town without him being mobbed. And it prevented him from just freely going about his ministry and his work. And that's one of the reasons why he would tell people, don't, don't tell anybody. The time isn't right yet. And so here we have another uh, outcome, right? A, a predictable outcome based on what Jesus just told the guy not to do. Okay, word got out. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's back in town. And now everybody is gathered together to hear from him, to catch a glimpse of him. In some way, just get a piece of what Jesus is doing. So much so that the house is packed. I think about that, and I think of times when my house has been packed. So we, we often will host our whole family, and when we get the whole Hudson side together, it's about 20 people, about 11 grandkids. And to fit that into our little three-bedroom house, it felt like the house was full, right? You'd set up the kid table in one area of the house, and then you'd have other makeshift chairs you'd pull out, make sure everybody's got a seat. And then if it's around Christmas time and everybody's opening presents, it's like you're all jammed into one room, and you look around and you feel like, man, this is a full house. Not, not the same as this kind of full house. Right? This kind of full house was shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow, standing room only, no square footage, Uh, available for anything other than a person who wanted to get close to Jesus. So much so that they were out the door, and if there's windows in this house, they're standing in the windows, just able, if they can, to catch a word or a glimpse of this miracle man who's come to town. And so we have a pack house, and Jesus is preaching the word to them. Verse 3. And they came, these four men, bringing to him a paralytic carried on a mat. So these four men got the same news that Jesus was in town, and they had an, an uncanny trust or belief or faith that Jesus could fix what was wrong with their friend. I mean, so much so that regardless of the crowds, they were going to get their friend to Jesus in some way, shape, or form. And so the story goes, you keep going, verse, uh, verse 4, when they couldn't get near the house because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. I'm going to stop there for a minute. Just let that sink in a minute. They couldn't get to Jesus, 
So here's four men carrying a paralyzed man on a makeshift uh, stretcher of sorts, coming to the crowd, seeing that they can't get in, come up with a plan to climb the roof with the stretcher, the paralyzed man on it. And the plan was, when they got up to the roof, was to rip a hole in the roof. I think we can just kind of read over that detail and miss the significance of what that means. I think it means a couple of things. One is that they were really convinced that Jesus could do something powerful. They were really convinced that Jesus could do what the rumors said he could do. They had a crazy trust in Jesus, so crazy that they had in their mind high risk, high reward. Right? I don't care what it means to rip a guy's roof apart. We are so convinced that Jesus can heal our friend that we are willing to take the risk because we believe he can do it. So they have this crazy faith in, in, uh, in Jesus, so much so that they come up with a plan to tear the roof apart, right? So roofs and houses were not built like they are today. They're not made of studs and plaster or drywall, rafter systems and shingles, right? What, what, is the, what is the mode of house building? What's the medium they probably used in those times in that geographical area? What do you think? Anything earthen probably, right? Talking clay and mud and dirt and sticks and stuff like that, right? So maybe even blocks made out of clay and stuff like that. But earthen material. And the houses are flat. They're not pitched houses. They're flat houses. They, they were functional roofs. So they would do things on top of the houses as well. And so it's a flat area. So now imagine this. Jesus is preaching and he's teaching to a packed house. I got a whole lot of room here to walk around and, and do my thing up here. But when Jesus was preaching in this house, it, w- it was a tight space, right? And it's a crowded house and there's people all over and they're hanging on every word of Jesus. What's going what's to happen when someone starts tearing a hole in the roof of an earthen house? What's going to happen to the people below? They're going to start getting... Dirt, clods of stuff falling down. So now imagine this. Jesus is preaching and he's teaching and all this stuff starts falling down above them, on top of them. What are they looking at now? Where does all the attention go in the middle of this time that Jesus is preaching and teaching? It all is now diverted from Jesus up to the roof. Right? These men are so convinced that Jesus can do something for their friend that they are willing to risk interrupting what Jesus is doing and putting their friend right in front of him, dead center, saying, essentially, this is more important than anything you're doing right now, Jesus. You've got to address this right now. And so the stuff has fallen, and it, it's got to be a hole big enough, it says, for the men to let down the bed on which the paralytic lay, in verse 4. So we're not talking like a little access, uh, attic access you might find in your closet. But we're talking about a hole big enough to get a whole full-grown paralyzed man down through the roof. And so everybody's got to wait. Like Jesus is going to pause. It's like preaching, uh, like if you're out in a park and you're preaching and an airplane goes over or a siren goes by or a train goes by. The preacher knows you just got to stop because that's way too distracting. So Jesus is probably in the middle of waiting just like everybody else is. But these men are so convinced that this is going to happen. So the hole is ripped open, a huge mess. 
They lower the mat down in front of Jesus, right? Verse 5, they lay it down in front of him. Everything is interrupted. You can see, visualize it, right? The four guys are looking through the hole in the top of the roof. Everybody's looking up at him thinking, what in the world is going on? Everybody now focuses on Jesus and thinks, what is Jesus going to do? What are the four men hoping to hear from Jesus? What words are they hoping, have they risked everything for in order to hear come out of the words, uh, the mouth of Jesus for their friend? What are they hoping to hear? What are they banking on them hearing? Send him down? No, well, he's already down. The guy's already there. He's sitting right in front of Jesus. What do they hope he's going to say? Get up and walk. That's why they took the risk. That's why they tore some guy's roof apart. That's why they interrupted everything Jesus was doing, because they wanted to hear those words, rise up and walk. Verse 6, or verse 5, what did they hear instead? When Jesus saw their faith, looked at the four men, looked at the paralyzed man, He could see that they had amazing faith, such amazing faith that they would risk all of this because they believed that Jesus could do something supernatural. He saw their faith and he said to the paralytic man, Son, your sins are forgiven. What do you think is going through those four friends' minds? It's like, uh, wait a minute. That's not what we were planning. We didn't go through all of this just to hear those words, right? You can imagine now their, their minds are like, oh, crap. What have we just done? Right? So I don't think they're the only ones wondering what's, what's happening here, right? Because we even get an insight into some of what the scribes were thinking at that time, right? So there were also in the crowd, there were some religious leaders and scribes, people who were well-versed in the law and the ways of God. And they were there. I don't know if they were antagonists there or if they were just genuinely curious. But they were there nonetheless. And Jesus reads their hearts. But I would bet that they were more than just the scribes who were thinking these things. I would bet the men in the roof and all the people in the house we're wondering the same thing. Can he really say that? Is, is that all right? Oh, I thought only God could forgive sins. Why is he saying things like that? Why doesn't he just heal the man? Why would he say something like that? You can begin to imagine maybe a little of the discomfort that Jesus creates, not only for the guys who went on risk to do what they did, but also those who are all witness to it. To hear Jesus respond this way is one, unexpected, and two, a little bit risky himself. So Jesus responds to what he knows they're thinking. Sort of the the room is filled with that awkward wondering like, what's going to happen now? Jesus can perceive this, right? And so Jesus does this several times in his ministry, and I love it when he does it. He takes this awkward, challenging question stuff that people bring at him, and he turns it around with one simple question back. 
And it causes everybody to kind of deal with what it is they brought to Jesus with in the first place, right? And so, verse, uh, verse 9, end of 8 into 9, Jesus says, Why do you wonder about these things in your heart? Why, why are you so upset about this? Why are you confused about what I'm doing, right? So then in verse 9, answer this, which is easier to say to the paralytic man, your sins are forgiven, or to say to him, rise up, take up your bed, and walk? I'm going to ask you that just right now. Maybe you've never thought about what the answer to that question. Which is easier to say? Now, you've got to think through this. This isn't as easy as you might think. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Let's say you walk into a hospital and you have a friend or relative who is lying ill in bed, unable to get up and walk. And you come in and you say, rise up and walk. How will anybody in the room know you have authority to say such a thing? What's the only evidence that will give you credibility? It's not a trick question. (laughs) It'll help to get up and walk. If If they can't get up and walk, everybody in the room will know that you're a phony. Right? But what if you'd walk into the hospital and say, your sins are forgiven? How will anybody know whether or not you have authority to do that? Does a person start glowing when forgiveness comes upon them? Do they start levitating? I mean, we hope that forgiveness gives transformation to people's lives, but I'm talking about like on the spot, somebody is forgiven. You can't tell, can you? Because it's an inner reality that connects to the heart and the soul. So when Jesus is very specific about this question, he did not ask which is harder or easier to do. He asked which is harder or easier to say. He knows the answer to both, but if he would have asked the question, which is easier to do, that's a totally different conversation. Let me ask you, which is easier to do? To rise someone up so that they might walk, heal them? Or to bring about the forgiveness of sins. Which is easier to do? Depends on who you ask, I guess. Jesus knows that rising someone up in, in uh, healing is easier than bringing about the forgiveness of sins for the world. Jesus knows that to bring forgiveness to the world means that it's a hard road that he must travel. He knows that the forgiveness of sins will lead to the cross for him. He knows that the forgiveness of sins will lead to carrying the sins of the whole world for all time on his shoulders. He knows that the forgiveness of sins will cause his father to turn his face away from his only son. He knows that the forgiveness of sins will drive nails through his hands and his feet. He knows that the forgiveness of sins will bring about his own death being buried in a grave. He knows that the forgiveness of sins can only be accomplished if the Father then raises him back to life. Jesus knows which is easier to do. It's easier to snap your fingers and raise someone up. He knows what it takes to bring about forgiveness. 
That's not what he asks, is it? He asks, which is easier to say? And of course, the answer is, it's easier probably to say your sins are forgiven because no one knows whether you have authority to say that or not. If anything actually happens when you say that. And so Jesus beautifully then answers his own question in verse 10. But that you may know, so that there is no doubt in this room, that what I just said, I have authority to say, that what I just said is just as true as anything else I'll say, that what I just said carries as much weight as anything else that I will ever say or do in my life, right? So that all of you will know that the Son of Man, that I, have authority to do what I just said I did in forgiving his sins. He turns to him and he says, now get up and walk. And he gets up and he walks. I'm amazed by that. How many of you have had like knee replacement, hip replacement surgery? How long does it take you? They get you up walking right away, but how long does it take you to get up and really start moving like you normally can move, right? So here's a man who's been paralyzed. Apparently, part of the miracle is not just healing him to not be paralyzed anymore, but like turning back the hands of time so that muscle atrophy is no longer a problem, that his muscles remember how to walk and he can just get up and walk and pick up his mat, not just a yoga mat you'd roll up and stick under your arm, but like a makeshift skiff that you've got to roll up and carry out of the room. Right? So it's an outward reality, an outward picture of an inward reality. Jesus says, I'm going to show you on the outside that I have ultimate authority over sin, death, and the power of the devil by, I'm gonna, by raising this man up. But by raising him up, you must also believe then that the other things that I say are also true. And when I say I forgive sins, it means it happens. So the man gets up and he walks out of the room. And then what's the reaction of the crowd? The end of verse 12. And so they were all amazed and they glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. I would love to see that part of the verse at the end of verse 5. Stick that last phrase at the end of verse 5. I would love to see so that they were amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. I wish the crowd would have said that in response to Jesus' words, son, your sins are forgiven. But it's not. What are they in amazement at when Jesus does? What causes their reaction of amazement? Is it the forgiveness of sins or is it the healing of the paralyzed man? Which one is it? It's the getting up and walk. This is a challenge for me, personally. This challenges me because of the two miracles that happened here. There was only one of them that brought amazement and awe. I feel like that's a lot of where I am in my faith, and I bet a lot of you are too. So every day I uh, wake up in the morning and, and do my quiet time, and I've got a, in my Bible, I've, I've got a list of things that I'm praying over. And that list of things that I'm praying over, a lot of it is situations in my family or my life or in people's lives that I love, situations that I'm asking God to come and do something about, whether it's 
health things or family things or whatever it might be. I've got a list of things that I come to Jesus, just like these paralyzed, the friends of the paralyzed man do, and I bring these things to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I trust that you can fix these situations. I trust that you can work in these things. I trust that you can do the, the supernatural, extraordinary work that only God can do. I'm bringing these things to you, and Lord, I'm counting on you to do them. I'm counting on you to show up. I'm counting on you to, to fix and repair and to mend. And then when God doesn't do it, at least on my time or in my way, I'm left wondering and doubting. I think, well, maybe I didn't ask right. Maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe I'm, I don't know, maybe I'm just doubting too much. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Maybe there's an unconfessed sin that's getting in the way. I don't know. I, I begin to doubt and wonder because I don't see God doing these amazing, miraculous things all over the place in my life. Fixing everything that needs to be fixed. Mending everything that needs to be mended. But what I love about this story is that Jesus does the most amazing thing first. He keeps first things first. He reminds us of the greatest miracle we could ever have in our lives. To have the forgiveness of sins means that every day we wake up, we have been given not because we deserve it, but because God loves us enough to give it to us. We have been given a restored relationship with our Creator. We've been given the gift of a new start. No matter what went wrong the day before, we have a brand new start. We've been given a clean slate from all of the things that have happened in our lives up to that point and anything that will yet happen, we have been given the opportunity to have it wiped clean. We've been given the joy of knowing that life is bigger than just where we live now. I wake up every day knowing that if this is my last day on earth, it will be for me the dawn of an eternal life spent in the presence of Jesus himself. But I often overlook that gift. I often overlook that miracle because I'm looking for shiny, flashy things. I'm looking for God to strike lightning and heal people and do all these crazy things. And don't get me wrong, I'm going to continue to pray for those things. Because God does still work in his time and in his way to break in in supernatural ways to fix broken things in our world. He promises to do it and he will do it in his time and his way. But no longer do I overlook the greater miracle that's happened in my life and in yours. The forgiveness of sins is the greatest thing that could ever happen to you. It's the greatest thing that could ever happen to me. It's the gift that will transform us from the inside out and from the finite to the infinite, from this world to the next. So as you pray, <clears throat> keep bringing to God all those things. As you wrestle and walk with God, keep bringing all of those things to God, all those things like these the, the friends of this paralyzed man, just like he did. Bring them to God, trusting them in his hand because he can do something about it and he's the only one who can do something about it. But when you do it, don't forget. 
you've already been given the greatest miracle that you haven't asked for. You've already been given the greatest miracle anyone could ever receive. You've been given the gift of forgiveness through Jesus Christ. Every day, that gift is yours. It can never be taken away from you. Sealed and done by the authority of Jesus because of the cross and the empty tomb. Don't forget it. Let me pray about that for you. Lord Jesus, I thank you that of all the things that you do in our lives, of all the ways you show yourself to us to be faithful and good, that it is through the cross and the forgiveness that comes there that we see you best, that we receive from you the most. Forgive us, Lord, for the the times when we just innocently overlook that great miracle, when we look for big, impressive signs rather than those small, quiet things that you do. Lord, we thank you that, that even though some of the big things may not happen in our lifetime, Lord, we know that we have the greatest miracle ever. Even if that paralyzed man was not healed to get up and walk, if he had the forgiveness of sins, Lord, he had it all. He had enough. Give us a faith in a heart that would live every day like that, knowing, Lord, that we have enough because we have forgiveness, that we have it all because we have the gift of your forgiveness and love. Lord, let that gift, let that miracle shape the way we live every day, grateful for what you have already done in our lives and anticipating more of the same. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.